Howdy all, everybody. Good morning or good evening or good day, whatever it happens to be in your location. Uh, let me get the thing going again and then we will proceed from there. All right. Om Gyanatimirandasya Gyanandana Salakaya Chaksurun Militam Yena Tasmai Sigurave Namaha Sitetanyamano Vistam Stapitam Yena Bhutale Sayam Rupakarama Himdarati Swaparantikam Vandeham Siguro Siyuta Parakamalam Siguron Vaishnavam Sirupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Ragunatan Vitam Tam Sajivam Sadvetam Savadutam Parijana Sahitam Krishna Chaitana Devam Si Radha Krishna Bharan Sahagana Lalita Si Vishakam Vitam Namo Bhakti Vinodaya Sakchidananda Namine Kaura Shakti Sarupaya Rupanuga Varayate Nama Chintamani Krishna's Chaitana Rasavigraha Purnasutto Nityamukto Bhinnatvam Namanamino Si Gauri Vaishnav Guru Paramparaki Jai Si Param Kurungi Jai Si Guru Dev Ki Jai Si Vaishnav Sangha Ki Jai all right well welcome again let's see who we have here welcome ken welcome hari priya sarada govinda mohini welcome sakirati and shamananda and we have carolina krishna kumari and marosh jai wonderful to have you guys here and um i was thinking of doing a quick recap since this is the last uh, class of my series of what we've gone through so far and of course we started with that there the first two chapters were these kind of like general um kind of like prepping for the 10 offenses and understanding shudhanam and uh, and what these offenses how they relate to shudhanam and um so the first one was kind of like a sambanda gyan um, chapter that explained the theoretical framework of of krishna and his relationship to us and our relationship to him and the world and these three main things basically how they relate to each other and then the second chapter was the namabas chapter which i made the chart of um, how what namabas is and how the different aspects of namabas relate to each other you know the namaparad and then this so kind of stage you could call namabas in these two, two different ways of the chaya namabas and praktibimba namabas which are the distortion and reflection and um and then Bhaktivinoda made the point in that chapter that it's essential to understand what namabas is in order for us to kind of like know how we are conditioned and how to uh like what what we are conditioned by so that we can overcome it eventually and then from there i jumped into the 10 offenses i started with the disrespecting the sadhus who have dedicated their lives to krishna fully and the second offense was the thinking of the demigods to be equal with krishna and the fourth one was the the big one the guru of avagya or like disrespecting the spiritual master and the fourth one was uh disrespecting the vedic scriptures or revelation and that's where i ended up i mean, I mean that's where we ended up last class excuse me and so the fifth offense that i'm going to start on this last class is interpreting the holy name and it actually really nicely flows from the previous one which was uh, disrespecting the revealed scriptures because if you don't have a theoretical 
authorized understanding of what the holy name is, then you will interpret the holy name based on your the only fac faculty that you really have in addition to um, to revelation, which is your own mind and your own senses. So you start interpreting the holy name based on the input that you have gathered through your own means. And that is uh, a recipe for disaster, so to speak. So the interesting thing is that, that in the original Padma Purana uh, chunk of these 10 offenses where these originate, um, the, the interpreting the holy name is one offense. And then there's another offense that is the considering the glories of the holy name to be imaginary. But interestingly, Bhaktivinoda merges these two in his Harinam Chintamani. And so he talks about both of those aspects inside interpreting the holy name, because when you think that the holy name is imaginary, that is a form of interpretation, really, when you think about it, because at least from the Gaudiya point of view, because we believe what we know, let's say, that the holy name is real. It's not imaginary. So thinking it to be imaginary is an interpretation. So the technical term for this interpretation in the Shastra or exaggeration is artavad. And it um, basically what it is, is that the scripture uses these baits, kind of like a carrot or something, to, to inspire people at the level that they're at to, to go beyond what they actually are even trying to reach by this kind of like transcendental trickery, you could say. Uh, I remember when I was a kid and um, there's this, uh, the, you know, the, what would you call it? Like the, kind of like the doctor's office inside the school, the nurse, yeah, the school nurse, right? And I had had some bad experiences with that. It was kind of like the, <laughs> Uh, the torture chamber of the school complex or something. And so then I remember one day I got called in, I was maybe seven or eight and I was just like shaking and I was so nervous and I hated that place. And so then I go in and there's this big lady all smiles and hi, how are you doing to me? And then like, yeah, I'm fine. Like totally just like ready to bolt out of the room. And then she gives me a cube of sugar. I'm like, wait a second. Like they, I was so suspicious. Like this lady is not supposed to be nice. There's something to this. And then I was like, I took the cube and I remember like still like so vividly how I was completely convinced that this is some kind of a trick. But then I ate the sugar cube and nothing happened. You know, I didn't die. I didn't start convulsing and fall on the floor or something. And uh, and I was like, wow, and maybe that lady is actually kind of nice. And of course, the nurses are nice, but we interpret them according to what it makes us feel in the, in the immediate. And so they'd given me shots before. They'd done all kinds of stuff that I found very unpleasant. But this time, she just gave me a cube of sugar. And of course, it was a trick, but it didn't feel like a trick because I got enjoyment out of it. And they also, you know... Um, gave me a polio um, medicine that was, did not hurt, you know, it, it was much easier for them and for me because I was like a squirming pig when they would give me those injections. So, or the vaccinations. So that's really what the, the Shastras do sometimes. They, they gave us these baits. It's like a bait and switch a little bit. So we go after something that we want and then we realize later on that it pushed us in the direction that's actually good for you. And Krishna actually has set up the scriptures in this way uh, that we, uh, we, despite our ignorance, it basically the scriptures kind of use our ignorance for us to move forward away from ignorance that you could say. And so examples could be something like, if you do this yagya on this certain day during the full moon, you will be liberated, for example. And so people who have faith in Shasha, they're like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. You know, only this one thing I have to do and then I'll be liberated. You know? Or I get some like amazing amount of sense, sense enjoyment from it or something. And of course, that habit habituates us into sadhana, into practicing to go beyond our uh, self-interest and, and ignorance, really. And so the Bhakti scriptures, actually, the, the one thing about it is that there is no exaggeration in terms of the glories of the name but sometimes nonetheless like the, the okay so the basic idea is 
this artavad does not happen in the bhakti scriptures in the same way that it happens in the uh, gyan and, and karma scriptures where you ostensibly get something else but actually the the sugar cube has that polio vaccination inside of it for bhakti it's like that that's what's so special about bhakti is that the the very early stages of sadhana and the goal are basically the same in the way that the practice is exactly the same and the sadhana becomes the sadhya when the name fully reveals itself it was always there or he was always there but we just didn't see it but that being said so that's basically what it means that there's no exaggeration in the bhakti scriptures regarding the holy name because it the name does give everything eventually but there's a question of how fast that happens that's another thing but then there are certain tricks that have been made but it's a different kind of thing because it doesn't give you some other end that you were asking for so for example a good like bhakti trickery is for example that Prabhupada so many times uh Shri Prabhupada said that if you chant your 16 rounds and follow the four regs every day you will be sure to go to Golok in, in your by the end of this life and that's of course a form of trickery that's extremely useful for sadhakas who struggle with um self-interest and and anarthas and of course it's possible that if you chant 16 rounds and follow the forex that you go to Golok, but it there's no formula formula in bhakti like that because it all comes down to how purified your heart is if you do not have a purified heart if you have some like the rupa goswami calls gyan and karma like the witches in the heart if you have those two witches in your heart you will you cannot attain prem and if you don't attain prem you don't just go to Golok because you have some backdoor although you have like uh you know impurities in your heart and you have other desires than bhakti you're not going to go to golok because the state the the reality of golok is absolute and complete purity so how could you go there just by following some kind of procedure and um this so then the the side the other side of this offense is that if you think that the the glories are imaginary which kind of is similar to exaggeration that it's actually not as good as it sounds you know the, the scripture has an agenda so, so it's it's kind of imaginary and that just shows lack of bhakti sukriti really because you can't and the predominance of like ignorance in your heart because if you're if you're um frame of reference is based on the information or the input that you get from your senses in your mind it sounds fantastical it doesn't sound real because you there's absolutely no point of reference for that in your everyday experience and we tend to believe what we experience so it's very easy to think even for uh, like devotees sometimes it's easy to think that maybe it is maybe there is a little bit of exaggeration like i'm not getting all these why am i not getting all these effects like I'm supposed to be rolling on the ground in ecstasy and like crying blood for Christ's sake. Nothing's happening. You know, I'm just like bored out of my mind. So it's easy when we're covered by ignorance to start thinking that maybe this is imaginary. And then what happens is devotees, they go away, but they are not satisfied in material life either. And then they start thinking, well, maybe there was actually something to it. And they come back. And because they've been kind of like holding back the dam of holy name that is partially natural for their heart, when they normally, when they come back, there's this like explosion of like feeling for the name and, and the devotional services. And then the ignorance, unfortunately, comes over again and gets covered. And then so in the early stage, it's very common that people kind of come and go because of that. They get over covered over by ignorance and then they go away for some time and then they got, get slightly uncovered and then they got covered again like that back and forth um and then bhaktivinoda makes the point that the only way to purify your consciousness out of this ignorance and he repeats this like over and over again in Harinam Chintamani when he gives the remedy he says that the only really the only remedy is the um the company of pure devotees or real devotees not even necessarily always pure but real devotees who are like truly seriously trying to uh reach prem and and the higher stages of sadhana bhakti um 
Yeah. Okay. I think that's that's you know sufficient about that that offense. And then I just want to mention that specifically what Bhaktivinod says about the remedy for this offense is that with the straw in mouth, one should approach an assembly of Vaishnavas and, and reveal his offense at their feet. So you like reveal your doubts and your, your faulty ideas about the name in the assembly of Vaishnavas, and that kind of like uh, dissipates that offense. Okay, so the next offense, number six, is committing sin on the strength of the holy name. And Bhaktivinoda Thakur is very heavy about this one. And if I remember correctly, I think the Padma Purana verses say that this is the, the worst offense. So basically, like, if a person truly takes shelter of the name, then all the sinful activities, they will actually gradually disappear. Because the name is pure consciousness, and you, you come in the presence of the pure consciousness or shuddha sattva and and of course on that plane there's absolutely no sin there's like there is no such thing as sin because everything is perfectly harmonized on that plane that level of pure consciousness and so you start getting in contact with that that pure plane where everything's harmonized and and your sin starts to evaporate because you start identifying with the higher plane but now that we're down here, then it's really useful to think like, what is sin actually? Like this word sin, like it has a lot of baggage, you know, this Christian baggage, but what is it exactly? And a simple way of saying is that it's, it's inauspicious activity or activity that ends up hurting you or making you miserable or going against the kind of like uh, uh, the, the order of how things are really, you could say. And and that inauspicious activity, it's it's caused purely by ignorance because we'd never because sin actually is against our self-interest. Do you guys still hear me? Yes. Hello? Oh, okay, weird. It just told me that I was logged out of my account but i don't know <laughs> if i'm still here then that's good enough uh so let's see where was i um oh yeah so like like sin is activity that is actually against our real self-interest and so if we were not in ignorance we would never go against our real self-interest the ignorance makes us think based on that false identification that our actual self-interest is somewhere else than in the matters that concern our soul and, and Krishna. And so first there's this like seed of sin. It's called Kutao Bija, I think. Uh, and so that it, the, the seed comes from premier, previous uh, sinful activities. And then that, that seed sprouts into like a, a sinful mentality or like a mindset. And from there, or psychology, and then from there, uh, sin sprouts into actual sinful behavior that perpetuate the cycle. And Bhagavan Sri Krishna, of course, he gives us the process by which this the seeds can be kind of burned, or like even the seeds, even even the karma that has not that is already fructified. What to speak of the seeds? So like the the blossom of the karma is going to burn, which is the producta producta karma. Even that's going to be burnt by bhakti. What to speak of all the seeds that are still in the ground? It's like this, like a flamethrower or something. Bhakti, I could say bhakti is a is a flamethrower. And when you torch seeds, they will never grow again, even if they are there. Um, and of course, once we start practicing, surrender will definitely come, you know, eventually. But it takes some time. And so when we're in that stage of Nama Bas, when we still have those seeds, the, the seeds, the torch, you know, the, the flamethrower hasn't done, hasn't gotten to the point where it's burned all of our seeds and all the active uh, sprouts of, of bad karma or good karma for that matter. It's we're in the stage of Nama Bas where we try to be pure, but we're not. And that's where there's like every uh, every chance that we will commit this upper out of thinking that, well, 
the name is so pure that I'm actually, I have no, there's no problem. I can keep doing my nonsense and by chanting, I can purify myself. Mm. And of course, if you, if you chanting the pure name, there's no question of having this kind of mentality because you're not struggling with any kind of ignorance or unartas. Um, and Bhaktivinoda mentions that sometimes, you know, devotees, not well, sometimes it's pretty generous. Devotees, a lot of times they, they do uh, commit this like non-premeditating sort of sin where all of a sudden their desires take over and they, they can't help themselves, but they do something that's unbecoming and, uh, uh, you know, relates to sinful activity. But then they feel bad about it. They don't want to, they don't want to keep doing that kind of thing. And so that's a very different thing than consciously thinking, yes, I want to keep enjoying, but I'm going to use Hari Nam as a kind of like a, like a body armor or like an insurance policy. Like, yeah, I'm fine. I'll just chant and keep doing, you know, enjoying and doing all this stuff that hurts my soul and hurts other people. But I'm kind of like, kind of like a, above the law basically because i chant and bhaktivinoda goes so far as to say that even a thinking of committing that offense is so grave that there's no remedy for it and then one has to just accept the intense suffering for countless lifetimes if you even think about that now <laughs> well you can decide how you feel about that but i'll just i'll just leave it there and then uh, Bhaktivinoda gives this example of like a monkey renunciate, which is one of the favorites of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati. And basically it means like monkeys look like they are renounced, but they do all kinds of, you know, inappropriate activity in the jungles. And so a monkey renunciate dresses up like a devotee, acts like a devotee to get the external benefits that come in a society that respects renunciation. But actually, that, that uh, so-called renunciate goes behind the scenes and has like sexual relations and just enjoys and wants the prestige of being recognized as a sadhu. And uh, for us, that's kind of hard to relate to in the West as like a larger society, because here it's like, oh, you're a sadhu. Like it's like the thing itself, even if you're a pure sadhu, uh, so many people think it's weird and freaky and, and like off, you know, it's not being renounced or spiritually advanced or spiritually really like focused is not high on the social ladder and i always remember when i went to vrindavan for the first time and i was so used to feeling a little awkward you know in public when i was wearing a dhoti and the whole get up because i knew what people were thinking and so i went to vrindavan and i was the first morning i was uh, going to see this one sadhu with Vrindarania who was friends with that Sado, actually he was her uh, Siksha Guru. And so uh, all of a sudden, like people on the streets, they go, Rade, Rade, like they, they show you deference for having saffron. I was completely taken aback by the fact that, that the thing that make, made me a freak in the West is actually like the, the sign of like the highest success in the traditional Indian society. And it really blew my mind because I grew up in Scandinavia, which is, you know, that area is some of the most secularized, secularized areas in the world. And there's no sense like that as a society that that spiritual practice and focus is, is like a desirable thing. Whereas in, in Vrindavan, it's the highest wealth that you can have is like spiritual dedication. And so, so the monkey renunciates, they abuse the system that is actually has the right framework for life. So they abuse that system and, and cheapen it by their personal desires. And they take advantage of a beautiful, correct understanding of what is the most uh, beautiful and most uh, valuable thing in life. And... Um, Then Bhaktivinod makes the point that, um, let's see here. So then he says, well, what's, what's the remedy for this kind of behavior? 
especially that when it's so extreme that you act like a vairagi, but you you're a, compl a complete sense enjoyer. And again, he says, though, one should remedy oneself by associating with pure devotees. And there's a nice quote. He says, sinful desires are like thieves on the road of bhakti, and the pure Vaishnavas are the protectors of the road. When one loudly calls out the name of the protectors of the road, the Vaishnavas will come and the thieves or the desires for sinful activity will flee. And uh, so that, again, like, it's just really driving the point home how if you want to chant purely, you absolutely need the, the um, company of, of advanced devotees. And I'll, I'll talk more about that a little later in the second to last and last um, offenses. Okay, let's move on to offense number seven, giving the holy name to the faithless. Now, when you start thinking about uh, what this offense means, you have to ask at first, like, who is first, first of all qualified to receive the name? And this answer seems very simple. It's it, the people who have bhakti sukriti or who have faith in, in Shuddha bhakti. And that is really the only qualifier, absolutely the only qualifier. Um, and what faith means, according to the way Bhaktivinoda words it, is that it's unflinching conviction in the glories and powers of the name. And that's a really beautiful uh, explanation that it really just comes down to whether you believe in the perfect purity and uh, otherworldliness of the name itself. Because that is like bhakti in seed, bhakti in this like condensed seed form is the, uh, the holy name. So if a person doesn't have an inkling or doesn't have any real faith, then a, a real Vaishnava will not give the name to that person. And giving the name here, of course, means like formal initiation. Um, and Bhaktivinoda says, continuing with this, um, this monkey, um, monkey metaphor, Giving the holy name to a faithless person is like giving uh, a monkey some like fine silk garments or like a sari or something, thinking that they would dress up in it and, you know, behave like a sophisticated lady or something. And of course, they get the thing and they like tear it up or something. I saw plenty of that in Vrindavan. They would steal like a shawl or glasses and they just they start eating on it. So they, of course, they'll just rip it up because they don't know what it's for. And uh, sometimes faithless people, like I was talking about in the context of a society that actually highly respects uh, spiritual advancement, sometimes a faithless person will want to get initiated just to get the, the secondary benefits of being a devotee. And they put on a show of being so dedicated, they roll on the ground. I mean, the Bengalis and Indians, you, you can see them actually do this. They just, you know, throw themselves down during the kirtan and start rolling up and down and, you know, do all this like sattvika baths. And then like Gromash points out, my Gromash points out a lot of times, like after the kirtan, they take a pack of cigarettes and like, start smoking. I guess that's another, you know, anubhav or something, whatever. So, so people, they want the benefits and then, then they, faithless people act like devotees. And it's exactly like the mark of the Vairagi idea. And um, they're kind of like, you know, like rock stars are at the pinnacle of Western societies, you could say, along with politicians and sports, uh, like athletes. But like these, if, if Vaishnavas are like rock stars, then these uh, fake devotees are kind of like groupies. Like they try to get the benefits of being a rock star by just a, a proximity to the real thing. So, yeah. So basically, fake devotees are like cheap groupies, if you want to call it that. And so when a guru, if a guru like is first taken by that show and they don't know the disciple very well, and then they realize, oh, this guy's actually a cheater, then they still try to lead that cheater on the right path, right path by, you know, telling them to abandon these bad ways and, and becoming humble and, and like actually trying to have real faith. But if that devotee is unwilling to actually change their ways and they just want to continue with their cheating, then the guru must immediately reject them because it cheapens the whole thing and it's, it's a charade of, of what it's supposed to be. But if the guru doesn't do that, 
then he's going to fall down as well, or she, because then they, they just do it out of whatever they get from that disciple. Or if the guru kind of, yeah, they, it could be kind of like a pension plan for an un, unqualified guru or an insurance policy that they receive dakshin or donations from the devotees. And that's, that's very, very unbecoming. But so then the question is like, well, if you can't give the glories of the name to the faithless, how are the faithless ever going to come on the other side? And Bhaktivinoda says that the, the method is loud sankirtan. And of course, you could add like prashadam and, and things like that will create faith without you having to have faith in the process or the, the philosophy. So things like sankirtan and prashadam and um, yeah, I guess things like that. And then once they get exposed enough, then at some point they actually come, their snout comes above the water of slightly of ignorance. And then they start desiring themselves to find a guru. And, and then when they approach a real Vaishnava, a real guru out of their own desire, then that, that's the, the pure process of like uh, guru parampara really. And then the remedy for this kind of uh, trying to uh, do sinful activities uh, at the strength, on the strength of the holy name is that one should have great fear if they commit this offense. And they should confess giving the name to a faithless person in front of Vaishnavas once again and, and give up the bad disciple or giving up that kind of bad, uh, bad conduct themselves. Moving on to offense eight, it is considering the name to be equivalent to material pious activity. So basically what this one means that is that we think that the holy name is one of the shubha karmas or these like uh, auspicious karmic activities like uh, let's say sacrifice or even japa can be shubha karma if it's not geared towards Krishna. So yeah, basically this offense is like you think that chanting Harinam is just another form of shubha karma that will like gradually elevate you for some other goal than Shruta Bhakti. Um, and like I talked about in the previous, one of the previous offenses, Krishna has set up the system where you can take the kind of like the slow road of gradually purifying yourself through like Shubha karma to Nishkam karma yoga to Jnana. And then when you purify your consciousness with Jnana, then you can very quickly adapt Bhakti if unless you're too attached to these ideas of detachment and detachment and renunciation. But um, of course, the Shuddha Bhakti path is extremely fast compared to that like gradual idea of first doing your Varnasham duties and then Nishkam Karma Yoga and Gyan and so forth. Bhakti is just like you kind of jump straight to the final uh, practice of chanting and it reaches all the way to the bottom and all the way to the up uh, to the top and uh, but of course people who are attached to enjoyment and are like self-centered and are always looking for that gain for themselves they don't relate to bhakti as much because it's not this like immediate gratification and so they do shubha, shubha karma if they are pious to um, that the kind of activities that are in the karma conduct scriptures or the dharma shastras so that they get these more immediate results and then the people who are attracted to renunciation and detachment they will follow the certain shubha karmas that that are said to give renunciation or, or gyan but Bhaktivinoda makes a really important and interesting point that actually the, the final goal, although it's indirect, the final goal of all Shubha karma or um, auspicious activity is praying because we are by nature the servants of Krishna. And so whatever we, wherever we try to uh, kind of like progress in life, the final goal is always praying. That is like the highest thing you can uh, attain. So if you're on this progressive path of, of gradual purification, eventually Prem is the goal even of that activity, even if you don't know it, because that is like the structure of reality. Um, 
And of course, people who are covered by either Gyan or Karma, they can't say, tell any difference between Shubha Karma and Bhakti because so many of the activities seem exactly the same. You know, you, you meditate, you do sacrifices, you, uh, uh, observe the holy days this all could be shubha karma but when it's in the context of shudha bhakti it's it's completely aprakrita or completely beyond any kind of tinge of karma or yeah um and so they the people who are covered by yana or karma they they constantly basically um commit this offense of of equating the holy name with shubha karma um, let's see. And it's good to remember that Subha karma is dependent on material circumstances, circumstances and procedures. Like you think about the karma kanda and the dharma shastras, it's extremely important that you do all the rituals right, and you get the get the result from following the the letter of the law right, instead of having the right feeling because your feeling is actually wrong so you can't follow your feeling so you have to follow the procedure and that's the huge difference between shubha karma and the holy name because krishna is said to be bhavagrahi janardana which means that he accepts the feeling and he can do that because when your feeling is directed towards krishna then there's no question that that is the correct feeling that is aligned with the structure of reality and and what is actually beneficial for you uh, and bhaktivinoda also emphasizes that it's very very important to have strong theoretical understanding of shuddha bhakti in order to avoid this mistake of thinking mixing up karma and gyan i mean karma and bhakti or gyan and bhakti or both or yoga and bhakti and so we have to like really think about it like what is karma exactly exactly and what is gyan? Like, what are the characteristics of those things? And how do they differ from Shuddha Bhakti? And if you have not read the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, I would highly recommend checking that book out because it's, it's very concise and like clear and beautiful and, and so nicely explained what is Shuddha Bhakti, that the whole book is about that. Um, and then the remedy is that first of all, one should desire to purify oneself. That one, there has to be a desire that I do not want to have these ideas that are kind of spawn out of ignorance or something. And then I, I want to read a direct quote because it's so nice. So, quote, the offender should give up all external considerations and smear his body with the dust from the feet of a householder devotee of very low birth who is fully surrendered to the pure name. He should eat the devotee's food remnants. He should drink water, which has washed the devotee's feet, and he should chant the pure name. This will purify the intelligence. So then one might think like, why is it so important that you do this to a householder devotee, first of all, who is from a very low background? And the obvious answer is that that is what shows you that the karma and bhakti are not the same. Because in the karma context, you would only worship the highest and the purest Brahman, you know, because it's all about purity, right? But the thing is, well, it's obvious, right? That it's, I thought it was beautiful. Bhaktivinoda didn't explain it in what he said, but I started thinking like, wait, why is he saying that? Then it became like just very obvious that yes, he's making the point. Shubha karma has all everything to do with these like conventions and social considerations of what purity is and what progress is. And, and, but when there's a devotee who's very, very, has a low background, but they are pure devotees, then there's no question that uh, the real thing is not Shubhakarma. And let's see. So the next offense, and this is my personal favorite, and it's, it's very important, well, favorite in the way that this is the one that I personally feel like, <coughs> I'm uh, battling with the most at the moment. And that's, of course, the offense of inattention. And uh, so the interesting thing is, I mentioned to you guys earlier that the uh, interpreting the name and considering the name to be uh, imaginary, those were merged. So what's, what do you, you know, put in for the 10 offenses 
because when you merge two, there's one slot left, right? Well, the inattention is the one that Bhaktivinoda decided to place in the 10 offenses, whereas in the original Padma Purana verses, it gives the 10 offenses and then it says, and also it's offensive to chant inattentively. But Bhaktivinoda felt like it was more important. It should be in the, I get, well, I shouldn't say that's what he thought, but it, it seems like he thought that it's more important than just this like for uh, like a kind of like a last thought in the end and so he put it in the slot number nine and uh Bhaktivinod says that that all other offenses actually arise from this anartha and so it's interesting that it was actually not in the original 10 but Bhaktivinod says that other offenses arise from this one and he breaks it down in attention into three different uh, categories. There's indifference, inertia or laziness, and restlessness of the mind. So let's go through this because for me personally, and I'm sure you guys feel the same, this is like really, really important to understand. And it's so frustrating, frustrating for me when I sit down and chant and my mind's all over the freaking place. And it really just agitates me a lot and so let's just look at like what is actually happening what's causing this and what are the different aspects of that inattention so he starts with indifference so he points out in the beginning that one must constantly chant Harinam with full attention to be able to reach the state stage of anurag or like real attraction for the name and so the attraction will will not come if you're not paying full attention there's an inkling of attraction for us sometimes but it's not it doesn't uh stay on because we're so uh sidelined by all these other considerations and desires and most people i mean well let's say most devotees are still attracted by material things what to speak of normal people i mean that's on a totally different level but even us devotees i would say most of us are attra attracted by material things uh that we want for our for our own pleasure and this desire for that bhukti or enjoyment inhibits the taste of the name and and that's why it's it's very sad and unfortunate but most devotees don't have much taste for the name at all and that this is the, the one of the main reasons. And that taste, the, the lack of taste due to these material desires is called uh, indifference, or the Sanskrit word is odasinya. And then Bhaktivinoda asks, how can one derive any benefit if one's mind goes in the opposite direction from the holy name? And the opposite direction, is, of course, is, of course, the material world. It's kind of like a polarity in a way. There's the material world, the maya, and then there's the, maha, the yoga maya or Krishna with his shaktis. So that's indifference. And then the remedy, this is really interesting. So Bhaktivinoda says, what is the remedy for this indifference? He says, Again, find association of a devotee who chants purely and in a secluded place uh, in his or her company, chant for a short time each day. And so you might be wondering, what's a short time? And Bhaktivinoda says, a few hours. <laughs> and so for most devotees, that's not a short time. That's like 24, 25 rounds if you chant 16 rounds in in. Uh, two hours. Of course, I drew this comic the other day about a sportscaster who chants 16 rounds in 35 minutes. So for him, it would be a lot more rounds. But anyway, so just to think that a few hours is a short time, that kind of puts the um, frame of reference in its right place that that we might feel really good about ourselves for chanting 16 rounds, but that's the very, very beginning, you could say. And the 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 goal of Gaudiya Vaishnavism is to chant constantly. And I, I don't want to say this. I don't want to make you guys feel bad or like discouraged or something. But at the same time, I think it is good to recognize that we are beginners. And then, and then we should act accordingly. We are beginners. And that's fine. There's not, nothing wrong with that. We have to go through the different stages. But we're definitely beginners. Um, and then when that devotee who's in the company of that pure devotee, he'll see the Vaishnav's attraction for the name and, and it's inspiring. And I, I definitely have this experience in my own life with my Guru Maharaj. 
and other advanced devotees that it's it's very inspiring to see like wow it is possible it's real and i'm just you know i'm just not there yet but it, it is possible and then that will actually like dissipate the indifference when you then start increasing your own chanting and then Bhaktivinoda says once you do this you, you will gradually increase your chanting until you will be easily chanting 300,000 names, which is 192 rounds a day. And I once tried out how many rounds I could chant in a day, and I got to 117, and I was like, <laughs> my jaw was like clenched. I could, I could hardly like open my mouth, and my voice was all raspy. I was like, oh my God, like 192 rounds a day is just physically speaking, it's rough. What's the speaker for the mind? Like, I was pretty good for the first 64 rounds. Oh, yeah, this is pretty cool. And then, then it started going down and down, down. By the end of like 117, I was like so ready to quit the whole thing. But it's, uh, it's kind of good to test yourself sometimes. Like what is your actual level of taste? And then, of course, you shouldn't keep trying something crazy like that. But it won't hurt if you try it a day or two or something. And then you just gradually start pumping it up. And then one day, all of us for sure are going to be chanting that 300,000 names. There's no question about that. Uh, he also points out that chanting is most beneficial in places of Krishna's pastimes, like Vrindavan and, and uh, Mayapur, and chanting near Tulsi, and of course, in the company of Vaishnavas. So then he gives another remedy for this indifference. He says, just isolate yourself into a room like lock yourself up in a room cover your eyes and ears and even your nose he says and just basically block all your senses for getting any stimuli and in the modern context it definitely means like turn off your phone especially social media it it will keep rotating so Bhaktivinoda is talking about locking yourself in a room which back then meant to turn off your phone because that meant that you cut yourself off from the social uh, circle. And so that's definitely something to consider. Bhaktivinoda is basically telling you to cut down on your social media. <laughs> and uh, so when you chant in this way, you'll, Bhaktivinoda says that you'll quickly develop nishta and then ruchi. And uh, so... That was that. And then the next aspect of this inattention is inertia or laziness. Basically, what that means is that you procrastinate. You don't really feel like doing it. You come up with excuses. Or then when you're chanting, you're like, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, and then you pull your beads out of the back. You, you, instead of counting the mantra, you count the beads. Like, okay, I have 25 to go. Let's go a little faster or something like that. Or you like... I, this was a new concept for me. I've never done it myself, but I heard in one of the Japa retreats that Archan City does, there's something called the cleanup chanting that you pace when you chant and then you <laughs> tidy things up around you while you chant. That was a pretty funny one. So that's a form of laziness. You basically, you just, you know, like a kid in the back says, like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Dad, are we there yet? You just, you can't just like be with the name. You're constantly focused on when I'm going to be done with this, you know? And so what is the remedy for that kind of thing? Well, surprisingly, the company of pure devotees. And the reason that it's especially good for this specific uh, in a form of inattention in the form of laziness is that, that real devotees are very careful not to waste time. And they're constantly either serving or chanting. And that kind of intense focus will inspire the lower devotee to, to kind of model the real devotees and and they they develop this admiration for that quality of focus on service and chanting and when you start admiring something and you constantly are reminded reminded by it you start creating a samskar and then that admiration becomes like a value and then eventually that value turns into action i mean it could take lifetimes but you have to start it from aspiring for something higher than where you're at and that aspiration and that that like fanboyhood creates the samskar of wanting that thing yourself uh, and then what you know it says that by that kind of admiration then eventually the good influence will start purifying your mind and then actually you will become extremely eager instead of completely uneager to chant and you'll effortlessly, first of all, increase your chanting to 100,000 names and then straight to 300,000 names. So you have Bhaktivinoda's word on that. Uh, 
So get that good association is basically the bottom line. And then the third form of inattention is restlessness. And that's also caused kind of like inattention. I mean, kind of like uh, indifference. It's caused by desire for pleasure and especially for sexual pleasure, wealth, material success, position, basically karma, kamini fratishta is the Sanskrit slogan. So sexual pleasure, wealth, and recognition. And the reason is that why this makes you restless is that when you're chanting, your mind's constantly like, I could be doing this, or I could be doing that. And restlessness really means that you're somewhere else in your mind than where your body is. And that makes your body restless because your mind is trying to pull you like, come on, dude, like, let's go. There's something more exciting over here. And really, it's the anarthas or the false values that, that make us restless during chanting. And so a good remedy for this is, according to Bhaktivinoda, is to regulate our behavior according to proper Vaishnava behavior. And this is a really nice, nice answer to this problem. Basically, you, you create a structure for your life so that it's regulated sort of from the outside, but by the right intention, instead of letting your mind make the decisions or your desires dictate how you're going to behave in any situation. And that's really what this kind of like devotee behavior code, what that Vaishnava etiquette is all about. It is about um, creating a structure this external structure that makes you behave in a way that you start creating some scars that then automatically in the end gradually turn into behavior that you want to do instead of having to follow rules. So, and there's a really great series by Sri Padmanabh Maharaj called Vaishnav Etiquette on the Sri Chaitanya Sangha um, YouTube channel. So I highly, highly recommend you guys check that out if you're interested in regulating your everyday life for the you know ultimate goal of prem of course it's not rules for themselves mean nothing but it's it's all for prem and bhaktivinoda mentions ekadashi festival days you know oh and the chanting just sticking to your prescribed number of rounds is a great way of of regulating your everyday life it's very very important so try to always stick to your like my Gurumash always says you can chant you don't have to chant 16 rounds but don't go below whatever you promised for your guru just gradually increase it if you feel like you have the standing to do that but do not go back um and then bhaktivinoda points out that once these desires evaporate through this like vaidhi bhakti basically where you regulate your life and you chant your rounds no matter what then the desires start evaporating from your heart and then once those desires are out of your heart there's nothing to be restless about anymore. And then you start seeing like, well, what am I actually doing here? And then your full focus like zooms in on the holy name. Yeah, yeah, I wish. Yeah, anyway, one day, right? Um, so that's the remedy. Basically, find the right behavior and then regulate. I mean, find the good sangha and then regulate your life based on Vaishnava behavior, Vaishnava etiquette. And then, let's see. Oh, yeah. Bhaktivinoda makes very, uh, a very important point in the end of this chapter. He says that while we strive for our greatest ability, oh, based on our greatest ability and the best we can do, we, we try to do the best we can do, we have to recognize at the same time that without the mercy of Sri Bhagavan, we have absolutely no chance of ever reaching Prem. So like, that's really important to remember, especially with this inattention one, that it's not up to only our own effort. It's not like Gyano Yoga in that way, but that Krishna's mercy is the root cause of success in our bhajan, and it's the root cause of Prem, and that we have to incorporate this like earnest prayer in our chanting, that like, please, you know, Bhagavan, Sri Krishna, or especially Mahaprabhu and Nityananda, please like help me focus my mind help me like get rid of these stupid anarthas that are just no good useless trash in my heart and mahaprabhu and nityananda there's that beautiful one of my all-time favorite bhajans the paramakarona 
and the lyrics are just so beautiful it's like you're the highest uh mercy and um you basically say just let me focus um and uh, one time i was uh, when i was a new devotee um i was having some struggles and uh i then i went up to gurumach and i was just like again well i didn't do, do it too much but i i started pouring my heart out and he was like well you know i was expressing all these doubts and he was like well he was something like, do you really think that the deities are just like a lump of brass? We have these Gornitai deities here that are made out of brass. And it was one of those moments again, like that happened to me sometimes. That, you know, like, like those uh, light bulb moments. I was like, yeah, that's right. Like, <laughs> he was just like, well, you just go in front of the deities and pray. It's, they're not like material objects. And, uh, and it'll certainly help you, you know. And so I did, and and sure enough, the all this like crazy mental trash just like got swept out right away. And it always comes back, but then you go back and then you pray more. Um, and that's how it works. Um, okay, the last offense is attachment to me and mine. And although Bhaktivinoda said that the ninth uh, offense of inattention that all the other ones spring from that the 10th offense uh, he says is actually the worst the attachment to me and mine because inattention comes from this attachment to me and mine basically in inattention and so through that all the other anarthas they all come from material attachment or attachment to to gyan um So when you believe in the designations of, of what comes with the body, that is really, that it's as simple as that. If you believe that you are whatever you're designated to be in this karmic, psychophysical package, that's me and mine. And so if you really consider how much even in our everyday life, we um, are influenced by these kind of external non-bhakti things, um we are pretty badly uh covered even as devotees and uh then he points out that the opposite of this mindset is the six limbs of saranagati so there's like material attachment the sense of me and mine and then the other sense is the the sense of full surrender and there's so much to be said about the limbs of Saranagati, but I'm just going to quickly read through them so that you um, kind of get an idea of what I'm talking about here. So first, accepting favorable things, rejecting unfavorable favorable things. Of course, we're talking about bhakti. And then thinking that Krishna is one's protector and becoming completely dependent on Krishna. And then thinking of oneself as low, unqualified, and insignificant. And then the final one is surrendering self completely. So that is the, the absolute opposite of the me and mine mentality. And that's why devotion, basically, Saranagati, that's what devotion is. It's, it's the constant cultivation of these six limbs of Saranagati. And so instead of following your own desires, Saranagata identifies with Krishna's desires and, and always fulfills to work his desires in, instead of one's own uh, mental concoctions of what is important and, and worthy. And so one really identifies as a servant of the perfect whole instead of thinking oneself to be the perfect whole, basically. And uh, this, this kind of attitude of kind of like displacing oneself from the center this attitude is what brings that krishna's mercy that was mentioned in the previous thing that is absolutely uh, uh crucial before ever reaching prem uh so as long as we think like really this me and mine idea it culminates in this idea of independence that we are like independent from other people, independent from our environment, independent from God. Um, 
and like what comes from that kind of independent thinking is that when when we if we surrender something to krishna we think that we are sacrificing some of our own things to krishna that's still part of the me and mine and as long as we are in that kind of mindset we won't be able to be like real saranagatas um and like we naturally think that we're in control in the material sphere because things seem to work like that like if you want something you go and do it it's it seems so like self-explanatory for the conditioned state that that we are the doers that and that if we want anything we have to strive to get it and that's how we get it but um in the bigger picture that is certainly like the wrong way of seeing yourself and existence and that is exactly why you could say death and disease are like catastrophic events in people's lives who believe in this independence because there's nothing that better shows the the illusion of independence than death and disease it completely just like just one one sweep of the you know the scythe of death and your illusion of independence is completely cut down and then a lot of times when somebody dies and so then the people next like the the close people or family or friends they start turning to spirituality because there's no way of dealing with that materially speaking because it hits in the core the root of what the material mindset is and so you can't find any solace there and then you kind of have to go to the spiritual side and you become more thoughtful and, and stuff like that and so then if we keep practicing bhakti but we we want to hold on to this idea that we're independent on every level that's when we commit this offense of of the although we get hear the glories of the name and we're chanting we still like hold on to this idea um let's see here okay so then what is the remedy and the, the of course the re re remedy is first of all bhaktivinoda wants to point out that that deliverance from this particular operat is extremely difficult and but however there are some vaishnavas who have given up material desire and they simply just live for the holy name and that's their whole life and so the only remedy once again is to seek out that company and and serve them not just find find them and, and be in their company but serve them and one should also listen to the glories of the holy name and give up the me and my mentality and that's really that's like the like saranagati in a nutshell is to engage in bhakti and try to uh retire this me and mine attitude well, then one could ask, well, what about all of us? You know, we've been devotees, some of us 20 years, some of us 30 years, some of us 40 years, but we're still attached to material things. And so, like, are we constantly committing this apparat? And in fact, Brigu actually asked this to my Guru Maharaj on one of the Sunday calls. My Guru Maharaj was quite generous. He basically said, well, if you know that your spiritual life is progressive, then you're not committing this apparat. That's how I remember his answer. Shamananda is a, has a, this computer like memory, so he might remember more specifically what Gurumach said, but uh, that's what I remember the gist of it being that, that really, like, if you're progressing, it means that you're doing something right, because otherwise you wouldn't make any progress. If you only want to hold on to these material desires and, and this sense of me and mine, you will not make any progress. So, we might still have material desires, but we're moving in the right direction, which means that there's sincerity in our hearts. But then the last thing that Bhaktivinoda says here is that we shouldn't only avoid things. It's not only like do nuts. It's also like Bhakti is in fact all about this positive cultivation of, of like a, what would you call it? Um, favorable culture of krishna consciousness in the bhakti rasamrita sindhu the term is krishna anushilanam and so this favorable cultivation of the kind of culture that is useful and so in the end after giving all these heavy like warnings and heavy chastisements of 
doing this and that aparad, Bhakti Note says, actually, let me quote this is so nice. He says, therefore, the real devotee, so he turns all the 10 offenses into what, what is favorable and how we should conduct our lives instead. The real devotee always avoids criticisms, criticism of criticism of the devotees and avoids harming the devotees, which is the first offense, and conversely serves them. Then two, he regards only Vishnu as the Supreme Lord. Three, he gives the utmost regard to the person who gives the holy name and its teachings. Of course, that's respecting the guru. And he gives great regard to the scriptures because they glorify the holy name. And then he understands the ex exalted position of the holy name, which is purely spiritual, completely different from material means. He seriously attempts to give up the desire for sinful activity and the root of sin. And he preaches the glories of the pure name to those people who have faith. He distinguishes the holy name from material pious activities, and he chants with attention. And finally, he surrenders completely to the will of Krishna. And then Bhaktivinoda wraps up the 10 offenses by saying, one who avoids the 10 offenses and engages in devotional service, as mentioned above, is the most fortunate and wealthy person in all of the three worlds. And then quickly Baba will come and then Prem. So that is a, the personal guarantee of Bhaktivinoda. And my uh, classes on the Harinam Chintamani end here, but there are in fact two more chapters to the book. And But I... One of them is Seva Aparat, which basically lists all the, the offenses that you can commit while you're doing deity worship. And the second one is this very high, uh, basically it's like once you chant Sudhanam, how do you further cultivate your, your Siddha Deha? So I would say that that's probably a little <laughs> beyond our Adhikar at this point. So let's leave that for the time when we start chanting Sudhanam, if you guys don't mind. So that's the end of my series. And uh, I'd just like to thank you all for giving me the opportunity to uh, get into this stuff and talk about it with you guys. And, uh, and I hope we will all be chanting that 300,000 names sooner than later. Thank you very much. And if you guys have any comments or questions or chastisements, please uh, shoot them my way. Sarada says, thank you for some very important classes. Jai, thank you very much. Well, I guess if that is all, then uh, I thank you all again. And uh, next month, there's going to be some really good stuff coming up. So I hope I'll see you guys there. Go to Pramananda. Hari, Hari, Bo. Guru Nishta Prabhu Ki Jai. Yeah.